You know, the thing that is cute almost any other time is really annoying in the middle of the night. So when the cry started, the thoughts rushed in. Oh, is that what I think it is? Again? Feels like this happens every night. Maybe if I just roll over and go back to sleep, it'll stop. But the crying didn't stop. It just got louder and louder and louder and more urgent. So somebody had to do something. So the shepherd boy rolled off of his cot. And he grabbed his sandals and he picked up a small torch and lit it with the smoldering embers of last night's fire. And he rubbed his eyes and began to follow toward the cry. He thought he knew the cry. It was one that sounded familiar. He thought, this is probably the one that this happens to all the time. And he moved toward it. And the cry was getting louder and louder and louder, but he couldn't see it. He couldn't see where the cry was coming from. And he thought, uh-oh, that can only mean one thing. So he started to step gently and make sure that he was on good footing. He didn't want to fall in until eventually he got right to where the cry was coming from. And he looked down into the muddy ravine and sure enough, there was that nine-month-old lamb stuck in the mud. So the shepherd boy the one who had killed lions and bears, who would eventually kill giants, looked with compassion on this little lamb and bent down and with all of his strength pulled it up out of the miry bog and set it on firm ground. You know, years later, many years later, after many victories and many battles, when that shepherd boy had grown to be a person with more money and more fame and more influence, more power than he could have ever imagined, he would find himself stuck in a miry bog just like that little lamb and he would cry out to his good shepherd and his good shepherd would come and deliver him. And because of that experience, now King David, the former shepherd boy, now the king, would write a new song. He says in verse three of chapter 40, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And Psalm 40 is that song. Psalm 40 is the song that we read of David telling about God's deliverance, telling about how God has rescued, thanking God for his power and grace in his life. We're in this series called The Psalms, Learning to Pray. We're just each week looking at a psalm and trying to understand how this helps us get closer to the heart of God and therefore closer to the heart of prayer. And so this week we're looking at Psalm 40. And it's interesting because Psalm 40 is really a great case study in what it's like to be rescued by God and what happens afterward. Kind of what the process is for a person who's experienced the rescue of God. Now, I don't know if you would consider yourself a Christian, if you would consider yourself a person who has come to faith in Christ, who has a saving relationship with God, but if we were to get up and you were to share your story, 99% of your stories would not be, you know, I was going along in my life and everything was awesome. And it kept being awesome. And it just kept getting more and more awesome until finally I was like, you know what would take this to a whole new level of awesome is if I just trusted Christ. And that's how I came to faith. Right? That's just about nobody's story. Right? I've heard lots and lots of baptism testimonies. I've sat with lots of people who said, hey, how did you come to faith in Christ? And almost always it's, my life was going along great and then. 
and then. And the then is some sort of difficulty, some sort of trial, some sort of moment when I felt like I was in the bottom of a pit. Maybe I moved to a new place and I didn't know anybody. Maybe I had kids and I wasn't as fun as I thought it was gonna be and I found myself emotional and depressed. Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's a rebellious child. Maybe it's, I have everything in my life but I still feel so empty. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a divorce. But whatever it is, we have these things that happen where we end up feeling like we're in the bottom of a pit and we cry out, God, help. And it's in that moment when maybe we rely on things we've heard from when we were kids about the Lord or maybe someone else comes into our life and says, hey, let me offer you some hope. Here's the good news about Jesus. And you experience rescue. You experience deliverance. Maybe your circumstances doesn't change. Maybe your circumstance is the exact same, but all of a sudden you have a new song, you have a new hope because of what God's done. So you've experienced the first part of these five kind of steps, and I'm gonna describe them in kind of linear steps. I think they can happen in kind of a linear way. I don't think they have to, uh, and I think these are the things that we keep experiencing throughout our lives as followers of Christ. So sort of five, five experiences that we have when we experience deliverance. That's kind of what we're looking at here in Psalm 40. The first one is this. Wow, I'm free. Wow, I'm free. It's this joy, it's this exuberance, it's this delight, it's this amazement. Oh my gosh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, what's frustrating about these psalms as we study these week by week is it's like we're dropped into the middle of a conversation between the author and God and we don't know anything really about what's going on. We don't know what the circumstances are. We don't know what exactly has led up to this. What, how old is he when he's writing? We don't know a lot of that stuff. But we know at this point that David in verses one to three has experienced this great rescue from some sort of difficult situation. Look at what he says in verse one. I waited patiently for the Lord. The Hebrew literally there just says, I waited, waited for the Lord. It's repeated twice, the same word. I waited, waited for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And I love that because sometimes when, we, when someone says, hey, you just need to wait on the Lord, that makes you think you gotta be passive. I gotta not do anything. I gotta not say anything. I just need to wait for God to show up. But David's waiting involved his cry, right? Because if while he was waiting, that's what the Lord heard was his cry. He cried out to the Lord. He cried out for help. He was like a helpless little lamb stuck in the bottom of a pit. Help, help, help. And God answered, verse two, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He's saying, I was in the pit of destruction and God showed up. Wow, I'm free. I didn't just get set free from the mud. I also got placed on a rock. And because of that, I've got a new song and I've got a new hope. And I've got to tell people, right? He, he says just right out the gate, many will see as a result of this. I'm not going to be able to keep this story to myself. And that's one of the things that happens when you experience, wow, I'm free. When I was uh, 17, I became a Christian. 
even though lots of times throughout my life I had made a decision to become a Christian. You go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's kind of confusing, but it's how it worked. I had a lot of times growing up where I you know, went to a Billy Graham event and I walked forward or I went to a thing and I told my mom, hey mom, I asked Jesus into my heart. I made a lot of decisions to become a Christian without my heart ever really being changed. And so I remember uh, headed into my junior year, I was still in this place where I thought I was a Christian. I was sort of around Christians. In fact, I had been going to this Bible study with some friends. They were a couple years ahead of me in school and we had this Bible study. And uh, I don't know, if, have you ever been to a Bible study? They look really different. This one was what I would call an ignorance on fire Bible study. <laughs> all right, so I don't know what kind of studies you've been in or not, but here's literally what would happen is we'd go, all right, what are we gonna talk about tonight? Someone would flip to the index of the Bible, go, hope. We'd look up all the verses about hope. And then basically people would just be like, wow. That's awesome, right? That was pretty much the, if, the study, right? It wasn't like we had this deep theological understanding. It wasn't like anybody who knew anything was teaching it, right? But I was part of this study and I thought I was a Christian. And the guy who hosted the study came to me as he was headed off to college. He said, hey, I want you to keep this Bible study going. I think you ought to host it. I think you ought to do it at your house. And I was like, Josh, no way. No, I'm not interested. I can't do that. Absolutely not. I don't have anything to say. I, now, I don't think I was a Christian. So of course, why would I want to host that Bible study? Well, a couple months later, neighbor gets involved in my life, starts reading the Gospel of John with me. And uh, long story short, I experienced this kind of deliverance. My life was pretty good, but I still realized I'm not all I think I am. I need Christ. And I came to faith in Christ. And you know what one of the first things I wanted to do? Start the Bible study. I never in a million years thought I'd end up being a pastor it wasn't about that. It wasn't about, oh, I got to do something. It was like just, God's given me a new song. I got to share it. Let's keep the ignorance on fire. <laughs> we'll just keep going. And, and that's what happens when you experience, wow, wow, I'm free. And this is an emotional experience and it's an existential experience. It's, it's an experience more than it is even like a thought process, at least for most of us. At least that's how it was for David. And then there's more reflection that happens and more time that passes and more analysis that takes place where you start to go, what really happened? And that leads you into the second phase that David shows us here in this psalm, which is, hmm, God really cares. It starts with, wow, I'm free. Then you think. And your thought and your analysis and your study doesn't make you go, well, that was stupid. That was just a rush of emotionalism. It actually makes you go, no, wow, hmm, God cares even more than I thought. Verse four, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. David says, hey, the Lord has the answers. As you keep trusting him, you find more and more answers, more and more hope. Don't go after the proud. Don't go after the world. God's the one who really cares. Verse five, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. David analyzes, he thinks, who is God really? What has God really done? And here's what he finds. He finds that God has multiplied. God has poured out. God has exploded over him. What does he say? Wondrous deeds 
and thoughts toward us. Now, this is what's fascinating. The wondrous deeds refer to the past. Uh, David is saying, wow, Lord, you've multiplied all all the blessing that I've just experienced this little moment. That's actually been all throughout my history. Your wondrous deeds toward your creation, your wondrous deeds toward the people of Israel, your wondrous deeds toward me, you've been amazingly faithful. And this is what happens, actually, as you start to think about it. You start seeing your story through a new lens. You start seeing these things in your past that you went, that was terrible, and starting to go, wait. But God used that to lead me to that school, and it was at that school I met this person, and this person kept me to that person, and they told, and you start to go, whoa. You start to see God's wondrous deeds in your past. Now, you can't connect all the dots. You don't know all the things. One of the things I can't wait for is someday in in the new heavens and the new earth to sit with Jesus and hear him share my testimony. Here's what I was doing. Here's what was going on that you didn't know. Here were the people who were praying for you that you had no idea. I just can't wait for that. That's what David's saying. God's wondrous deeds for us in the past multiplied, just incredible. But then he says, you've multiplied your thoughts toward us. This has a future dimension. This has a future element. This is saying, God, you haven't just done amazing things in the past. You have amazing things in the future. You have great thoughts toward us. I think there are some of us who may, I don't, I don't know what causes this, if this is a form of how we're raised or a background, or I, I don't know what causes this, but there are some people that go, oh my gosh, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy to me, incredible. But now, I'm on thin ice. I'm on spiritual parole. Like, God's forgiven me, he's done a lot of good stuff, but I better not screw it up. This is the last time. And we have forgotten, if that's you, you've forgotten that God has multiplied his thoughts toward you. Just as he's been faithful in your story in the past, he'll be faithful in your story in the future. You think about it, you start to go, huh, God really cares. Which leads you then to the next phase, which is, okay, I'm yours, Lord. You start with, wow, I'm free. Then you go, hmm, God really cares. And then you say, okay, I'm yours, Lord. This is a moment of commitment. This is a moment of determining to follow the Lord. That's what David describes in verse six. Now, before we look at verse six, uh, I want those of you, especially those of you who have any kind of church or Bible or any kind of background, have you ever heard somebody give some version of this? In the Old Testament, this is, this is kind of how the version goes. In the Old Testament, People were able to have relationship with God if they did all the right things, followed the laws, and kept all the sacrifices. But in the New Testament, we're able to have relationship with God because of Jesus. Anybody ever heard a version of that? Well, verse six basically says to that. It just says no, not at all. It absolutely blows that up. Look at verse six. In sacrifice and offering... You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. David says, Lord, 
You don't get all fired up with the sin offerings and the burn offerings and the ritual. What you get fired up about is giving me an open ear. You delight when I delight in you, right? That's what he continues to say in verse seven. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The bottom line here is God doesn't want our rituals. God wants us. Us. Now, yes, the Old Testament has lots of laws, has lots of sacrifices. But God always in the midst of that says, these are pictures of the heart that I want from you. Right? Here's a homework assignment for you. Go this week and read Isaiah 1. And one of the things you'll see there, again, this is Old Testament, you'll see God saying, I have had it up to here with your stupid sacrifices. Not because the sacrifices are bad, but because your heart is. Your sacrifices look great. Your worship service is top notch. But you have done evil and you've neglected good. You've done injustice and neglected the cause of the fatherless and the widow and the vulnerable. And so I'm done with your sacrifices. Why? Is it because the sacrifices were bad? No. It's because God wanted something better. God wanted something deeper. And in fact, what we'll see when we get to the book of Hebrews, which is actually gonna quote this particular passage, is that all those sacrifices point to a bigger and better sacrifice. In fact, even David's commitment here, I mean, this is such a strong statement of commitment, isn't it? Verse seven, look at verse seven. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your laws within my heart. That's such a big statement that you even kind of go, well, David, that's great that you're so committed to God, but you're still a sinner. And even all your commitment isn't gonna be enough. You need something bigger than that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But for now, what you see is this amazing statement. I'm yours, Lord. I want to follow you. I want to know you. I'm not going to do ritual. And ritual looks different for us, right? Ritual might be church attendance. It might be financial giving. It might be volunteering. It might be whatever kind of things that you do to make you feel like you're a good boy or a good girl. That's not it. What God wants is our heart. So it goes, wow, I'm free. Hmm. God really cares. Okay, I'm yours, Lord. And then here's the fourth element. Yo, check out what God did. Yo, yo, hey, 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 look over here. Hey, check out what God did. That's the next step. Right, it starts with this, oh wow, you're amazing. And then you think about it and then you resolve and you commit. But it also has this element, right? It's not like the emotion goes away. It's not like the excitement goes away. It's saying, I gotta share this. I can't keep this to myself. Yo, check out at what God did. Now this is hinted at in verse three, right? Where he says, many will see, many will fear, many will put their trust. But he just overwhelms it here in verses nine and 10. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. He says, I'm telling it. I'm speaking it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to restrain it. I'm not going to conceal it. God has done great things for me. 
Now, some of you are going, oh, okay, so this is now the part where he's going to tell me I need to go share my faith with people that don't know Christ. Eh. You should do that. That's not what David's saying. Who does David say he's talking to? Who's he going to tell? Who's he going to speak to? What does he say? Look at the text. What does it say? The great congregation. David is saying it's God's people that need to hear about the deliverance. It's God's people that need to hear about the rescue. Now that, that phrase, the great congregation, it's also used in Psalm 22. It's used in Psalm 68 with the idea that, that part of the great congregation are people, outsiders from the nations who are watching this, who are going to be influenced by what God says and what God's done. But David is first and foremost saying, the other people in my life who know the Lord need to hear this. And if they need to hear it, then how much more do the other people need to hear it? And some of you might go, well, gosh, I don't know. I don't know anything. And if I start trying to tell people all these things, I, I don't know what to say. Maybe you don't. It's okay. See, David doesn't say, I'm going to teach everybody everything. He says, I'm going to tell the glad news of deliverance. What glad news of deliverance? The thing that happened to me. So you may not know all the answers, you may not be able to answer all the questions, but if you know what God has done for you, you can share that. You can tell others, you can encourage us. There's a reason when we do baptisms, and uh, many people who, who get baptized, not everybody, you don't have to, but most people share their story or have their story shared. There's a reason that some of you stay for all three services when we do that. There's a reason why the videos of those stories are the most watched videos on our thing. Why? Because there's nothing more encouraging than hearing, look at what God did. Look at what God did for this person. So we share it. You go, oh, but I'm an introvert. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I would bet you that so was David. You go, well, he was a king and he was a warrior and he was a soldier. Yeah, but he was also a shepherd and a songwriter. <laughs> so shepherds spend a lot of time alone, right? And songwriters, I, I don't know many songwriters, the ones I do, they're kind of happy you're there. But they're mostly kind of keeping themselves. They have a few close friends. They, they want to get into deep conversations. That's probably David. And yet David is saying, what God has done for me, I can't keep to myself. I've got to tell people. I've got to share this. And I don't think that's unique to David. It's not unique to to spiritual stuff. This is just how we feel about everything that's important, everything that's exciting. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a 20th century author and philosopher, and he just has some wonderful reflections on this. Here's what he says about this, kind of a long quote, but it's, it's fascinating. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their football favorite game. <laughs> so like 50 days away, we're getting close. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, go Illini, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. 
Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. And then this is a really important, I think, insightful thing here. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Saying you're not even going to enjoy it fully until you tell someone, right? Here's what he says. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Right? Can you imagine that drive to Sedona? Right? And you take the curve and you see the mountain in front of you and you can't say anything. No, that would be terrible. Why? Because you don't fully enjoy it until you hit your friend. <laughs> Shouldn't do that to your wife. You go, honey, wow, look at this. And it's the same thing. When God has worked marvelously in us, we gotta tell people. Our joy's not complete till we do. So here's kind of this process we've seen. Wow, I'm free. Huh, God really cares. Okay, Lord, I'm all in. Number four, yo, check out what God did. And you'd think, okay, based on that, we are on the fast track towards super Christian. Right, sainthood is in my future, like the Mount Rushmore of Christians, I'm headed toward it. Right, as soon as, like David, wow, what a guy. There's just never been, like, this is the typical story. Not so fast. Because here's the last part, the last phase. This is the phase that many of us, most of us, most of the time find ourselves in, which is this. Uh-oh. More help, please, Lord. Uh-oh, more help. Right, you'd think, oh my gosh, David's got it. He's found the key. You just have to be really amazed by God and then you have to give really good thought to it and then you have to commit a lot and then, and then you have to tell others and if you just follow these four steps, you're made, right? No, because life is just gonna keep being filled with, uh-oh, more help, please. Verse 11 as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And he prays in verses 13 to 15, Lord, the people who are so excited about my downfall, would you help them be disappointed? And he says, Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. 
David's in trouble again. He's going, Lord, I'm back in the pit. Lord, I'm stuck again. Lord, I'm here again. And this time, we don't know what the pit was before. Was it a health condition? Was it the circumstances surrounding his uh, kingdom? Was it a sin? We don't know what it was. But here we know that at least whatever trouble he's now going to face is self-inflicted. Look at verse 12. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. That's another word for sin. That's another word for, for disbelief, for disobedience. David's sin, his iniquities, his guilt, his shame, it's more than he can bear. He says, I can't even see it. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. He says, again, again, I need your help, God. And I love the humility of this. I love that David doesn't do what I so often want to do and what I think so many of us want to do, which is, We've, we've had these moments of, okay, Lord, I'm committed. I'm in. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to tell others. I'm going to make a real difference. I'm going to do it this time, God. And then we blow it. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed. Like, ah, darn it. And you feel like, I, I can't go back to God. It was just like 36 hours ago I told him, I'll never do it again. I just did it. And, and so this thing begins to go up between you and God. Because you won't confess your sin. You won't admit it. You won't keep asking for help. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's self-sufficiency. It's disbelief in the good news of the gospel. And it goes up. And before long, it grows and it grows. And the distance between you and God gets bigger and gets calcified. And you don't feel like you can go back. And I love that David here is saying, Lord, I, I did it again. I need your help again. Would you help me again? As for me, I am poor and needy, but you're my help, God. Where else am I going to go? So this shows unbelievable humility. It also shows incredible faith. Because what David's saying, he's saying, God, your resources aren't limited. Your patience hasn't run out. Your ability to forgive and to cleanse and to rescue isn't finite. You, you keep having it. Now, it's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Like up to this point, you sort of go, oh yeah, this is the path toward victorious Christian living. No, no, it's not. Or is it? Is the path to victorious Christian living actually having the humility and the faith to keep asking God for help. To realize that it's never been your ability. It's never been your righteousness. It's never been your obedience. It's never been your discipline and fortitude that got you into the relationship with God and it's not gonna be any of those things that hold on to the relationship with God. Your hope is and has been and always must be only in Jesus. And if that's true, then you can have the humility and the faith to keep going back to God and to, to say, Lord, I really do genuinely want to do better. Lord, I genuinely do want to delight in your will, but I didn't right now, and I need your help. The author of Hebrews, 
who uh, many, many years later was writing to a group of Jewish Christians after the time of Christ. And these were Jews who had realized the answer isn't the sacrificial system, but they still kind of had this residue of if I just try harder and if I just work harder, maybe things will be better. And they're experiencing difficulty. They're experiencing pain. They're experiencing persecution. And the author of Hebrews actually uses Psalm 40 to encourage them. Let me show you what he does. Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, big religious words in here. I'll just try to kind of paraphrase as we go. Hebrews 10 verse 1. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He says, listen, there's all these rituals and these laws and they're important, but they're not the, they're not the heart of it. They're the shadow that point to the more important thing. And so if you depend on these rituals, if you depend on your religion, if you depend on your internal fortitude, it can't make you perfect. Do you see that? It can't make perfect those who draw near. He continues, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? He says, if, if, if the sacrifices had a permanent effect, wouldn't you do it once and then be done? Right? That makes sense. He says, verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, it's impossible for any human resolve, any human commitment, any human ritual to take away our sin permanently. We can't depend on that. Verse five, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and here he quotes Psalm 40. So this, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse five and six, is Psalm 40. And I think what the author of Hebrews is doing is going, you know, David meant what he said. When David said, hey, God, I'm all in for you, he really meant that. But that is such a big promise. That is such a bold commitment that someone even as great as David couldn't really end the sacrificial system with his commitment. Someone better than David, a son of David, needed to come. So here he's saying, this is what Jesus said. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author of Hebrews, again, just to track this thing, he's saying, all your religious effort, all your determination, you gotta keep doing it. it never, you, you never do it and it's done. Only someone bigger and better than David and bigger and better than you can come and take care of this, and it's Jesus. He goes on to say this a few verses later in Hebrews 10. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, hold on real fast. My guess is most of you have never offered a sacrifice in your life. Anybody ever sacrificed an animal? Please don't raise your hand, we have law enforcement here. <laughs> hey, that could be, uh, you don't wanna do that. And nobody's done that. And so we go, eh, whatever. But how often do you think, God, 
serious this time. I'm going to do it this time, God. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to, I'm going to keep my eyes pure. I'm, a, I'm not going to, you know, click on that email. I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to spend that money that we've budgeted for this other thing. I'm going to do it this time, God. I'm really going to. And it's, in a sense, your religious sacrifice. It's you saying, here it is, God. I'm, I'm good. I'm going to just... And, you, and we do that day after day after day after day. And just like the sacrifices of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin, neither does our effort, our religiosity. So he says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, why did I underline that? Well, if you remember at the beginning of this passage in Hebrews 10 that I I quoted, it said, the law and the ritual and all this human effort can't make you perfect, right? Do you remember it said that? And now here, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus, through one offering on the cross, right, he's the ultimate sacrifice. He has come to do God's will. He has literally given himself, not just figuratively like, Lord, I'm all yours, but truly, I'm yours. Take my life. By a single offering, it says, he has perfected. That is past completed action. It's done. This is what Jesus said, the very last thing he said on the cross. It is finished. Done. For by a single offering, he has perfected. And then this just blows my mind. Those who are being sanctified. The word sanctified means to become more holy, to become more obedient, to become more perfect. So here's kind of literally what it's saying. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are becoming perfect. What does that mean? What that means is all the resources that you need for growing in your faith, for growing in obedience, for growing in godliness, for becoming more like the person you long to be, for becoming more like the person you think God's calling you to be. All those resources, they're not found in your effort. They're not found in ritual. They're not found in you saying, well, I gotta do better this time. They're found in Christ. And so if you will have the humility in prayer, if you will have the faith in prayer to keep praying this story to say, God, Wow, you've done amazing things in my life. And you love me more than I could ever imagine. Your thoughts for me are incredible. I want to do your will. I want to tell other people about you. But I fail over and over. My iniquities are more than my hair on my head. But Lord, that's not going to stop me from coming to you. I'm poor. I'm needy. Would you help? Would you be here, God? That's how you grow in your faith. When you go, Lord, I'm that helpless lamb that keeps falling in the pit, but you're a good shepherd and you keep rescuing me. 
Will you have the humility? Will you have the faith to relate to God like that? Let's pray.